This is a recording of The Spectacles, the Stone, the Hat, and the Book, a 21st Century Believer's View of the Book of Mormon Translation, by Roger Nicholson, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 5, 2013, pages 121 through 190, read by Scott Dunaway. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. Abstract this essay seeks to examine the Book of Mormon translation method from the perspective of a regular, non-scholarly, believing member in the 21st century by taking into account both what is learned in church and what can be learned from historical records that are now easily available. What do we know? What should we know? How can a believing Latter-day Saint reconcile apparently conflicting accounts of the translation process? An examination of the historical sources is used to provide us with a fuller and more complete understanding of the complexity that exists in the early events of the Restoration. These accounts come from both believing and non-believing sources, and some skepticism ought to be employed in choosing to accept some of the interpretations offered by some of these sources as fact. However, an examination of these sources provides a larger picture, and the answer to these questions provide an enlightening look into church history and the evolution of the translation story. This essay focuses primarily on the methods and instruments used in the translation process and how a faithful Latter-day Saint might view these as further evidence of the truthfulness of the restored gospel. In his 1916 book, the birth of Mormonism, John Quincy Adams provided this rather colorful description of the Book of Mormon translation method. Quote, the process of translating the reformed Egyptian plates was similar though peculiar. It was all done with the Urim and Thummim spectacles, but it was instant death for anyone but, but Joe to use them. Even when he put them on, the light became so dazzling that he was obliged to look through his hat. Moreover, when so engaged, no profane eyes were allowed to see him or the hat. Alone, behind a blanket stretched across the room, Joe looked into his hat and read the mystic words. Any Latter-day Saint will immediately be able to sort the familiar from the unfamiliar elements of this story. We see the Urim and Thummim and the blanket shielding the translator from others in the room. But what is all this talk about a hat? As an active Latter-day Saint, I cannot remember a time when I was not familiar with the story of the translation of the Book of Mormon. The story with which we are quite familiar from Sunday school and seminary describes Joseph using the Urim and Thummim, the Nephite interpreters, to look at the gold plates while screened from his scribe by a curtain. Joseph dictated the entire text of the Book of Mormon to his scribe, picking up the next day right where he had left off the day before and the text was written without any punctuation. Joseph never required that any of the previous text be reread when the translation started again the next day. The bulk of the translation was accomplished within a roughly three-month period, and the resulting text is remarkably consistent not only with itself, but with the Bible. 
the circumstances surrounding the translation and production of the Book of Mormon can only be considered miraculous when considered by a believing member of the Church. There is, however, another story with which many have become familiar in recent years. Modern portrayals of the translation process, such as that shown in the popular animated television show South Park, depict Joseph looking at a stone in the bottom of his hat and dictating to his scribe without the use of a curtain. The popular online encyclopedia, Wikipedia, displays a, quote, 21st century artistic representation of Joseph Smith translating the gold plates by examining a seer stone in his hat, end quote. A Google search of, quote, Book of Mormon translation, end quote, or, quote, seer stone Joseph Smith, end quote, produces a large number of such images, many of them hosted by websites that are critical of the Church's truth claims. This is a method which I did not learn about in seminary, and there are anecdotal stories of Latter-day Saints who, upon being presented with this portrayal, simply deny that this method may ever have been employed, attributing such depictions to, quote, anti-Mormon, end quote, sources. Depictions of the translation process by artists have also contributed to the confusion. Latter-day Saints are quite familiar with a variety of artistic portrayals of Joseph and Oliver as they participated in the translation process. Some depict Joseph and his scribes sitting at a table with a curtain across the middle. Others show Joseph and Oliver sitting together at a table, with no curtain in view and the plates clearly visible. Yet we know that Oliver was not allowed to view the plates prior to acting as one of the three witnesses. One thing that these scenes have in common is that they do not depict the Urim and Thummim, despite the fact that we know that a translation instrument was used during the process. We see no crystal stones mounted in a set of, quote, spectacles, end quote, nor do we see the breastplate. We certainly never see Joseph gazing into the bottom of his hat while dictating. The 21st century has given us access to a wealth of historical sources that were simply unavailable to the average Latter-day Saint in previous decades. Now one must ask the question, which of these portrayals is correct? In searching for an answer, we start with a modern church manual in order to provide us with our first clue. The following description of the translation process appears in the 2003 Church History in the Fullness of Times student manual, hereafter referred to as the student manual. Quote, Little is known about the, about the actual process of translating the record, primarily because those who knew the most about the translation, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, said the least about it. Moreover, Martin Harris, David Whitmer, and Emma Smith, who assisted Joseph, left no contemporary descriptions. The sketchy accounts they recorded much later in life were often contradictory. End quote. It makes perfect sense that those who were directly involved in or observed the translation would have the most accurate information. What, then, did these witnesses say that appears to have been contradictory? Were there other witnesses that can shed light on these events? What did outside sources have to say about the translation process? As Latter-day Saint researcher Brant Gardner summarizes it, quote, What stories shall we believe? What stories of the translation could we or should we tell? which stories are true. For this last question, I would suggest that they are all true. That is, they are true for the people who are telling them." Quote. What did Joseph and Oliver say? The logical place to begin is with the translator himself. 
what did Joseph Smith say about the Book of Mormon translation process? As it turns out, he said very little about the actual translation method used to produce the Book of Mormon, except to note that it was performed, quote, by the gift and power of God, end quote. The student manual notes that Joseph deliberately did not give any details of the process. Quote, the prophet was reluctant to give the details about the translation. In a church conference held 25 to 26 October 1831 in Orange, Ohio, Hiram requested that a first-hand account of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon be given. But the prophet said, It is not intended to tell the world all the particulars of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Joseph explained in an open letter to a newspaper editor in 1833 the heart of the matter, but he gave few particulars, stating that the Book of Mormon was found through the ministration of an holy angel and translated into our own language by the gift and power of God. His explanation is consistent with the Doctrine and Covenants, which says that he was granted power to translate through the mercy of God, by the power of God, the Book of Mormon. Doctrine and Covenants, section 1, verse 29. And that the Lord gave him power from on, on, on high by the means which were before prepared to translate the Book of Mormon. Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, verse 8. End quote. Joseph very consistently told people who asked that he had translated by the gift and power of God. He did not wish to focus on the method, but rather the result. Since Joseph chose not to provide details, we must examine what other witnesses to the translation said in order to get more accurate picture, a more accurate picture of the methods employed. Oliver Cowdery was the next witness closest to the translation, since he acted as scribe for the majority of it. Some of Oliver's descriptions of the translation are very much consistent with the story that we are already familiar with. However, Oliver's comments deserve a more detailed review. We will revisit Oliver's comments in more detail later. What did Martin Harris, David Whitmer, and Emma Smith say? The student manual refers to, quote, sketchy accounts, end quote, given, Quote, much later in life, end quote, by Martin Harris, David Whitmer, and Emma Smith. What is contained in these late accounts? How do they contradict what we know about the translation process? There are two things that these descriptions have in common. One, they were all given near the end of the person's life, and two, they all describe the use of a translation instrument placed in a hat. These stories may initially appear to be inconsistent with the story that we are familiar with today but there is a good reason for this. Near the end of her life in 1879, some 49 years after the publication of the Book of Mormon, Emma Smith Bitterman was interviewed by her son, Joseph Smith III. Emma described her memories of the translation process. Quote, in writing for your father, I frequently wrote day after day, often sitting at the table close by him, he sitting with his face buried in a hat, with the stone in it, and dictating hour after hour with nothing between us. End quote. This description raises some immediate questions. Where is the Yerman Thummim? Where is the curtain? Why is Joseph using a hat? Where are the plates? It is very easy to see that Emma's description appears to contradict the account that we learn in Sunday school. David Whitmer's description of the translation process also were given near the end 
of his life, with two notable descriptions given in 1885 and 1887, over 55 years after the publication of the Book of Mormon. Whitmer claimed that Joseph described the method to him, and he provides some detail that Emma did not. Quote, he used a stone called a seer's stone, the interpreters having been taken away from him because of transgression. The interpreters were taken from Joseph after he allowed Martin Harris to carry away the 116 pages of manuscript of the Book of Mormon as a punishment, but he was allowed to go on and translate by use of a seer's stone, which he had, and which he placed in a hat into which he buried his face, stating to me and others that the original character appeared upon parchment and under it the translation in English." Note that Whitmer mentions the interpreters, which we know as the Urim and Thummim, as being distinct from the seer stone. Whitmer is indicating that the interpreters were taken from Joseph after the loss of the 116 pages, and not given back to him. He mentions the use of a stone and a hat, just as Emma did. Again, there is no curtain mentioned. One might wonder at this point if this account is inconsistent with what the church has taught. However, Elder Russell M. Nelson quoted David Whitmer's 1887 account to a group of new mission presidents in 1992. This description is found in the July 1993 ensign and is on the church's official website, lds.org. Elder Nelson states, quote, The details of this miraculous method of translation are still not fully known. Yet we do have a few precious insights. David Whitmer wrote, Joseph Smith would put the seer stone into a hat and put his face in the hat, drawing it closely around his face to exclude the light, and in the darkness the spiritual light would shine. A piece of something resembling parchment would appear, and on that appeared the writing. One character at a time would appear, and under it was the interpretation in English. Brother Joseph would read off the English to Oliver Cowdery, who was his principal scribe, and when it was written down and repeated to Brother Joseph to see if it was correct, then it would disappear and another character with the interpretation would appear. Thus the Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God, and not by any power of man. End quote. David Whitmer, an address to all believers in Christ, Richmond, Missouri, uh, 1887, page 12. It is clear that Elder Nelson is quite aware of the stone and the hat. As it turns out, this is not a unique mention of these items within church publications. A search on LDS.org for the term, quote, seer stone translation, end quote, produces the following description from the September 1974 issue of the church's official children's magazine, The Friend. Quote, to help him with the translation, Joseph found with the gold plates a curious instrument which, which the ancients called Urim and Thummim, which consisted of two transparent stones set in a rim of a bowl fastened to a breastplate. Joseph also used an egg-shaped brown rock for translating called a seer stone." End quote. It is apparent that not only are the descriptions of Emma Smith and David Whitmer different than the process that we are familiar with, but that the Church has periodically made mention of some of this information. Next, we examine what Martin Harris had to say. Martin was quite closely involved with the early translation process, since he acted as Joseph's scribe for the first 116 pages of manuscript. 
as indicated by the student manual, near the end of his life, Martin Harris also provided a description of the translation process. Martin granted an interview to Joel Tiffany in 1859, in which he described the translation instrument that we commonly know as the Urim and Thummim. Quote, the two stones set in a bow of silver were two inches in diameter, perfectly round, and about five eighths of an inch thick at the center, but not so thick at the edges where they came into the bow. They were joined by a round bar of silver about three eighths of an inch in diameter and about four inches long, which, with the two stones, would make eight inches. The stones were white, like polished marble, with a few gray streaks. I never dared look into them by placing them in the hat, because Moses said that no man could see God and live, and we could see anything we wished by looking into them, and I could not keep the desire to see God out of my mind. And besides, we had a command to let no man look into them, except by the command of God, lest he should look out and perish. This description is quite interesting because Harris describes placing the Nephite interpreters in the hat, rather than a stone. Indeed, Martin's account of placing the Nephite interpreters in the hat even appears to contradict David's and Emma's account of Joseph using his own seer stone. Furthermore, all three accounts do not appear to be consistent with the story that we are familiar with of Joseph using the Urim and Thummim, sitting behind a curtain and looking at the plates while dictating to Oliver Cowdery. THE SPECTACLES AND THE HAT To gain a better understanding of how the translation process was viewed at the time that it occurred, we can examine how contemporary newspapers described it. In 1829, the New York newspaper, Rochester Advertiser, and Daily Telegraph reported on the translation of the Book of Mormon. The report understandably takes a skeptical tone. Quote, and after penetrating Mother Earth, a short distance, the gold golden Bible was found, together with a huge pair of spectacles. He had been directed, however, not to let any mortal being examine them, under no, under no less penalty than instant death. They were therefore nicely wrapped up and excluded from the vulgar gaze of poor wicked mortals. It was said that the leaves of the Bible were plates of gold, about eight inches long, six wide, and one-eighth of an inch thick, on which were engraved characters or hieroglyphics. By placing the spectacles in a hat and looking into it, Smith could, he said so at least, interpret these characters. This account seems consistent with Martin Harris's story that the Nephite interpreters were placed in a hat. Note also that the spectacles are not referred to as the Urim and Thummim. Did Joseph actually use a hat with the Nephite interpreters? We also see Martin's 1859 recollection that he, quote, never dared to look into them, end quote, because, quote, no man could see God and live, end quote, being amplified by the 1829 news account into a, quote, penalty of instant death, end quote. This account, or one like it, is likely the genesis of the story related by John Quincy Adams in 1916 of the threat of, quote, instant death, end quote waiting to befall anyone but Joseph if they attempted to use the interpreters. This newspaper description wasn't an aberration. The same description was repeated almost one month later in a New York publication called The Gem, a semi-monthly literary and miscellaneous journal. Quote, By placing the spectacles in a hat and looking into it, 
Smith interprets the characters into the English language. Four months later, in February 1830, Martin Harris is quoted in the New York Telescope. Quote, he proceeded to the spot and found the Bible with a huge pair of spectacles. He is said to have shown some of these characters to Professor Samuel L. Mitchell of this city, who could not translate them. Martin Harris returned and set Joseph Smith to the business of translating them, who, by placing the spectacles in a hat and looking into them, Joseph said he could interpret these characters." End quote. In June 1830, the Cincinnati Advertiser mentioned a quote, white stone end quote, and the hat. Quote, a fellow by the name of Joseph Smith, who resides in the upper part of Susquehanna County, has been for the last two years, we are told, employed in dedicating, as he says, by inspiration, a new Bible. He pretended that he had been entrusted by God with a golden Bible, which had been always hidden from the world. Smith would put his face into a hat in which he had a white stone and pretend to read from it, while his coadjutor transcribed." End quote. The reference to a white stone is consistent with Harris's description of the Nephite interpreters. All of these newspaper accounts are entirely consistent with Martin Harris's 1859 description given 30 years later. Therefore, it appears that Martin Harris told a consistent story. We have evidence that Martin Harris, both at the time that the translation occurred and at the end of his life, perceived that Joseph used the Nephite interpreters, or spectacles, to gather with a hat, together with a hat in order to interpret the characters on the gold plates. The use of the hat as part of the translation process was clearly noted. Martin's description would coincide with the period of time that he acted as scribe, which corresponded with the translation of the 116 lost pages of manuscript. The idea that the Urim and Thummim was placed in a hat sounds quite different from the mental picture that we might have of Joseph using the spectacles, like a pair of glasses, to view the plates. However, recall that Martin described the stones in the interpreters as, quote, white, like polished marble, with a few gray streaks, end quote. This does not necessarily imply that they were transparent. The references in newspapers to placing the spectacles in a hat continued for several years after the publication of the Book of Mormon. The October 15, 1831, Daily Albany Argus mentions the need to shield the interpreters from ambient light. Quote, the preacher said he found in the same place two stones with which he was enabled, by placing them over his eyes and putting his head in a dark corner, to decipher the hieroglyphics on the plates. End quote. The Morning Star, Limerick, Maine, March 7, 1833, states that, quote, An angel gave him a pair of spectacles which he put in a hat and thus read and translated, while one of the witnesses wrote it down from his mouth. End quote. Note that these newspaper accounts as late as 1833 still make no reference to the term Urim and Thummim, instead referring to the translators as stones or spectacles. The Protestant Sentinel in 1834 was either unaware of or unwilling to use the term Urim and Thummim to refer to the spectacles. They were, however, quite aware of the placement of the spectacles in the hat. The story has evolved somewhat to the point that the plates are in the hat as well. Quote, 
In the year 1828, one Joseph Smith, an illiterate young man, unable to read his own name, of Palmyra, Wayne County, New York, was reported to have found several golden plates, together with a pair of spectacles, relics of high antiquity. The spectacles were designed to aid mental vision, under rather peculiar circumstances. They were to be adjusted, and the visage thrust into a closed hat. This done, Smith could interpret the sacred mysteries of the plates, in which lay, by the hypothesis, in the top of the hat. End quote. The phrase, quote, aid mental vision, end quote, is worthy of note. Although we do not know where the writer got this idea, the statement implies that the spectacles did not necessarily function like a pair of glasses, but more like a seer stone. The New York Weekly Messenger, in 1835, five years after the Book of Mormon was, was published, claimed that both the plate and the two smooth flat stones were placed in a hat. Quote, Smith pretended that he had found some golden or brass plates, like the leaves of a book, hid in a box in the earth, to which he was directed by an angel in 1827, that the writing on them was in the reformed Egyptian language, that he was inspired to interpret the writing or engraving by putting a plate in his hat, putting two smooth flat stones, which he found in the box, in the hat, and putting his face therein, that he could not write, but as he translated, one Oliver Cowdery wrote it down." Although there are some amusing variations being introduced to the story relative to what we currently know, one thing that is consistent with all of the newspaper accounts mentioned so far is that they all mention the use of the Nephite interpreters, the spectacles, and the hat. Even the prophet's brother, William, 53 years after the publication of the Book of Mormon, talked of Joseph placing the Urim and Thummim in a hat. Quote, he translated them by means of the Urim and Thummim, which he obtained with the plates and the power of God. The manner in which this was done was by looking into the Urim and Thummim, which was placed in a hat to exclude the light, the plates lying near by covered up, and reading off the translation which appeared in the stone by the power of God. Joseph, Snot, Joseph Knight was a good friend of the Prophet Joseph. His account identifies the Urim and Thummim as the glasses. Significantly, Knight also mentions the hat. Quote, the way he translated was he put the Urim and Thummim into his hat and darkened his eyes. Then he would make a sentence and it would appear in bright Roman letters. Then he would tell the writer and he would write it. Then that would go away. The next sentence would come and so on. But if it was not spelled right, it would not go away till it was right. So we see it was marvelous. Thus, the whole, thus was the whole translated. End quote. These accounts present a case for considering that the idea that Joseph placed the spectacles, which we know as the Urim and Thummim, into a hat during the translation process. We usually assume that Joseph had the plates on the table and looked at them through the spectacles. The Spectacles as Urim and Thummim as previously noted, none of the contemporary newspaper accounts printed in the 1830-1833 time frame mentions the Urim and Thummim. Instead, they mention spectacles or a white stone. How then did the spectacles found by Joseph Smith come to be known as the Urim and Thummim? One of the earliest known references to the spectacles as the Urim and Thummim appeared in the Latter-day Saint newspaper, the Evening and Morning Star, in January 1833, 
three years after the Book of Mormon was published. The wording is interesting, as it appears to be one of the earliest times that the term Urim and Thummim is applied to the instruments of translation. Quote, the Book of Mormon, as a revelation from God, possesses some advantage over the old scripture. It has not been tinctured by the wisdom of man, with here and there an italic word to supply deficiencies. It was translated by the gift and power of God, by an unlearned man, through the aid of a pair of interpreters or spectacles, known perhaps in ancient days as teraphim or urim and thummim. Note the use of the word, quote, perhaps, end quote. It does not appear that the term Urim and Thummim was generally associated with the interpreters at this point in time. The reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints even made a point of noting that the term Urim and Thummim only came into use after 1833. Quote, the proofs are clear and positive that the story of the Urim and Thummim translation does not date back for its origin further than 1833, or between that date and 1835, for it is not found in any printed document of the Church of Christ up to the latter part of the year 1833 or the year 1834. The Book of Commandments to the Church of Christ, published in Independence, Missouri, in 1833, does not mention any allusion to Urim and Thummim, though the term was inserted in some of the revelations in their reprint in the Book of Doctrine and Covenants in 1835. End quote. The association of the term Urim and Thummim with the spectacles thus appears to have come into use several years after the publication of the Book of Mormon. The term may not have actually been used during the period of translation itself. Historian D. Michael Quinn, however, feels that the term may have been applied as early as 1828. Quote, this was the term in the manuscript history of the church for the object through which early revelations were received to 1830, and this statement about the Urim and Thummim has appeared in the headings to these early revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants from 1921 to the present. End quote. However, Quinn also notes that, quote, there was no reference to the Urim and Thummim in the headings of the Book of Commandments, 1833, or in the headings of the only editions of the Doctrine and Covenants prepared during Smith's life in 1835 and 1844. End quote. In 1836, we finally find a reference to the Urim and Thummim in a non-LDS publication. The story was printed in the Ohio Observer. Truman Coe resided in Kirtland, Ohio, but was not a member of the church. He appears to be repeating what either Joseph Smith or other church members in Kirtland told him, and therefore for employs the term Urim and Thummim to refer to the interpreters. Significantly, Coe does not mention the use of a hat. Quote, the manner of translation was as wonderful as the discovery. By putting his finger on one of the characters and imploring divine aid, then looking through the Urim and Thummim, he could see the import written in plain English on a green on a screen placed before him. End quote. Brant Gardner observes that Coe quote, certainly did not accept the story at face value, end quote, but that he quote, seems to have reported it without sarcasm or distortion. End quote. Gardner also notes that Coe's story quote, provides a picture of the translation that has endured from at least 1836 to modern times. End quote. 
Indeed, Coe's account appears to be very close to the story that we use in the church today, even correlating with certain modern artworks showing Joseph sitting at a table with his fingers on the plates. In 1840, we find a hostile account that actually employs the term Urim and Thummim to refer to the interpreters. In this account, the spectacles are placed on the eyes, and there is no mention of the use of a hat. Quote, he declared that an angel was sent from God to make known to him the place in which the book was concealed, that he searched and found the same, that the words were engraved on plates of gold in a language which no man understood, that and that two large jewels resembling diamonds were given to him, which, being applied to the eyes like spectacles, enabled him to get at the meaning and translate the Book of Mormon into English. These jewels were, he said, the Urim and Thummim of the Old Testament. End quote. An eighteen ninety one interview with the prophet's brother William Smith provides a description of the Urim and Thummim and its relationship to the breastplate. At the time that William gave his description, the term Urim and Thummim had been used for many years to describe the Nephite interpreters. William said that quote, a silver bow ran over one stone under the other, around over that one, and under the first in the shape of a horizontal figure eight, much like a pair of sp spectacles, end quote. Will William also said that the spectacles were, quote, much too large for Joseph, end quote, and that Joseph, quote, could only see through one at a time using sometimes one and sometimes the other. By putting his head in a hat or some dark object, it was not necessary to close one eye while looking through the stone with the other. In that way, sometimes when his eyes grew tired, he relieved them of the strain. William said that Joseph looked through stones, one at a time, which naturally implies that he was looking through them at the plates. Yet the placement of his head in a hat or some dark object seems to negate the idea that the plates were located on the other side of the stone. Because the Nephite interpreters took the form of spectacles, we naturally assume that Joseph was required to look through the interpreters directly at the characters on the plates. The Spectacles and the Stone Having seen contemporary newspaper accounts that are entirely consistent with Martin Harris's late-life description that the spectacles were used with a hat early in the translation process, what are we to make of the descriptions of Emma Smith and David Whitmer? They described the use of a, quote, seer stone, end quote, and a hat. The stone is mentioned infrequently in, a, in church publications, but there are several notable instances. As previously noted, the friend mentions two translation instruments, stating that, quote, Joseph found with the gold plates, a urim and thummim of a bow fastened to a breastplate, end quote, and that Joseph also used an egg-shaped brown rock for translating called a seer stone. Here we have evidence that Joseph employed more than one instrument during the translation process. Further confirmation can be found in an account of Edward Stevenson printed in the Deseret News in 1881, in which he quoted Martin Harris by saying, quote, that the prophet possessed a seer stone, by which he was enabled to translate as well from the Urim and Thummim, and for the convenience he then used the seer stone, end quote. We now see that Martin was aware of the existence of and the distinction between the 
two different translation instruments. In fact, we learn from the January 1988 ensign that Martin not only knew that Joseph both used the Nephite interpreters and a seer stone, but that Martin once actually swapped Joseph's stone with a different one in order to test Joseph's ability to translate. Quote, from April 12 to June 14, Joseph translated while Martin wrote, with only a curtain between them. On occasion they took breaks from the arduous task, sometimes going to the river and sometimes throwing stones. Once Martin found a rock closely resembling the seer stone Joseph sometimes used in place of the interpreters and substituted it without the prophet's knowledge. When the translation resumed, Joseph paused for a long time and then exclaimed, Martin, what is the matter? All is as dark as Egypt. Martin then confessed that he wished to stop the mouth of fools, who told him that the prophet memorized sentences and merely repeated them. Martin wanted proof that Joseph was actually capable of using the stone to translate. Since he dared not look at the spectacles in accordance with the Lord's commandment, he would only have ventured to switch Joseph's own seer stone. Emma Smith also confirms that Joseph switched between the Urim and Thummim and seer stone. Emma stated, quote, Now, first that my husband translated was translated by use of the Urim and Thummim, and that was the part that Martin Harris lost. And after that he used a small stone, not exactly black, but with rather a dark color, end quote. With this statement, Emma establishes a time frame for the transition from the Nephite interpreters to the seer stone. She states that it occurred after the loss of the 116 pages and upon the resumption of translation. David Whitmer, who only observed the translation after the loss of the 116 pages, also distinguished between the Urim and Thummim, the spectacles, and the seer stone. Quote, with the sanction of David Whitmer, and by his authority, I now state that he does not say that Joseph Smith ever translated in his presence by aid of Urim and Thummim, but by means of one dark-colored opaque stone called a seer stone, which was placed in the crown of a hat, into which Joseph put his face so as to exclude the external light. Then a spiritual light would shine forth, and parchment would appear before Joseph, upon which was a line of characters from the plates, and, and under it the translation in English, at least so Joseph said. Another Whitmer interview notes that while Joseph was not allowed by the Lord to display the Urim and Thummim, he was able to show others his seer stone. Quote, that Joseph had another stone called Seer's Stone, and peepstone is quite certain. This stone was frequently exhibited to different ones and helped to assuage their awful curiosity. But the Urim and Thummim never, unless possibly to Oliver Cowdery. Elder David Whitmer's idea was that the translation was made by the seer stone, as he calls it, not the interpreters, and Emma Smith's Bitterman statement record accords with Whitmer's with Whitmer as published in Herald some years since. The only discrepancy between the statements of the witnesses is that relating to the detail of the translation, and, as shown above, David and Emma, in the nature of things, did not know just how the Urim and Thummim were used, as they had never seen them. The reader will please bear in mind that no one was allowed to see either the plates or the Urim and Thummim, except as God commanded. 
the eight witnesses were allowed to see the plates and handle them as shown above, none else. End quote. In 1886, David Whitmer indicates that Joseph used his own seer stone to translate all of our current Book of Mormon text. In this interview, Whitmer states that the spectacles were never returned after the loss of the 116 pages, and that a seer stone was presented to Joseph Smith for the purpose of continuing the translation. Quote, by fervent prayer and by otherwise humbling himself, the prophet, however, again found favor, and was presented with a strange oval-shaped chocolate-colored stone about the size of an egg, only more flat, which it was promised should serve the same purpose as the, as the missing Urim and Thummim. The latter was a pair of transparent stones set in a bow-shaped frame and very much resembled a pair of spectacles. With this stone, all the present Book of Mormon was translated. However, however, Whitmer's assertion that Joseph was presented with a stone is most likely not correct, since Joseph already possessed at least one seer stone prior to receiving the Nephite interpreters. One could speculate that the angel took Joseph's stone away at the same time that he took the plates and the Nephite interpreters, and then returned it to him after consecrating it for the purpose of translation. There is, however, no evidence to confirm that this is the case, other than the fact that Joseph was allowed to use the stone for this purpose. Not only did Joseph possess a seer stone prior to receiving the Nephite interpreters, he was already quite familiar with the manner of its use. Matthew B. Brown notes that, quote, Joseph Smith reportedly said in 1826, while under examination in a court of law, that when he first obtained his personal seer stone, he placed it in his hat, and discovered that time, place, and distance were annihilated, that all intervening obstacles were removed, and that he possessed one of the attributes of deity, an all-seeing eye. End quote. Brown goes on to note that Brigham Young confirmed this view, quote, When Joseph had, re had a revelation, he had, as it were, the eyes of the Lord. He saw as the Lord sees. End quote. In fact, upon receiving the Nephite interpreters, Joseph reviewed them as a, viewed them as a more powerful version of the stone that he already possessed. Joseph Knight recalled that Joseph appeared to be more excited about receiving the glasses than the gold plates themselves. After Joseph returned from retrieving the plates, Joseph Knight recalled, quote, After breakfast, Joseph called me into the other room, and he set his foot on the bed and leaned his head on his hand and says, Well, I am disappointed. Well, say I, I am sorry. Well, says he, I am greatly disappointed. It is ten times better than I expected. Then he went on to tell the length and width and thickness of the plates, and, and said he, they appear to be gold, but he seemed to think more of the glasses or the Urim and Thummim than he did the plates, for says he, I can see anything. They are marvelous. Now they are written in characters, and I want them translated." End quote. The idea that the Nephite interpreters were a more powerful version of Joseph Seerstone is interesting, since it implies that there was something special about the stones themselves. It is more likely, however, that it was Joseph's own perception that the stones were superior, because these stones had been consecrated by God for the purpose of seeing things. 
However, the idea that the Nephite interpreters were superior to a common seer stone was accepted by 20th century apostle and church historian Joseph Fielding Smith. In response to accounts that indicated that Joseph may have used his own seer stone during the translation of the Book of Mormon, Elder Smith flatly stated that he did not believe this to be true, since the stone was inferior to the Nephite interpreters. In Doctrines of Salvation, published in 1956, Smith states that he considers such accounts hearsay. Quote, while the statement has been made by some writers that the prophet Joseph Smith used a seer stone part of the time in his translating of the record, and information points to the fact that he did have in his possession such a stone, yet there is no authentic statement in the history of the church which states that the use of such a stone was made in that translation. The information is all hearsay, and personally I do not believe that this stone was used for this purpose. The reason I give for this conclusion is found in the statement of the Lord to the brother of Jared, as recorded in Ether chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. These stones, the Urim and Thummim, which were given to the brother of Jared, were preserved for this very purpose of translating the record, both of the Jaredites and the Nephites. Then again the prophet was impressed by Moroni with the fact that these stones were given for that very purpose. It hardly seems reasonable to suppose that the prophet would substitute something evidently inferior under these circumstances. It may have been so, but it is so easy for a story of this kind to be circulated due to the fact that the prophet did possess a seer stone, which he may have used for some other purposes. End quote. We have now established that there are multiple accounts from witnesses and church sources confirming that Joseph switched from the spectacles or Nephite interpreters to a stone during the Book of Mormon translation process. The next question is, why did Joseph switch between translating instruments? Was it simply for convenience, as Martin Harris indicated? One possible explanation is that the size of the interpreters may have been a hindrance to their use. William Smith described the Nephite interpreters as, quote, much too large for Joseph, and he could only see through one at a time using sometimes one and sometimes the other, end quote. Charles Anton, who had to have obtained his information from Martin Harris, provided additional detail when he wrote that, quote, these spectacles were so large that if a person attempted to look through them, his two eyes would have to be turned towards one of the glasses merely the spectacles in question being altogether too large for the breadth of the human face. End quote. John Corll, in 1839, confirmed that Joseph had returned the Urim and Thummim to the angel before the Book of Mormon was published, noting that, quote, After finishing the translation, the, the plates and stones of Urim and Thummim were again taken and concealed by the angel for a wise purpose, and the translation published to the world in the winter of A.D. 1829 and 30." Another possible explanation is that the Nephite interpreters were never returned to Joseph, and that he was expected to continue the translation using his own seer stone. David Whitmer seems to indicate this as a possibility when he claims that the Urim and Thummim were taken from Joseph and that he was presented with a seer stone. Based upon these accounts, it appears that Joseph began the translation process using the Nephite interpreters and that at some point he may have used them with a hat. 
After the loss of the 116 pages, he may have either switched to his own seer stone or continued to use the Nephite spectacles, again with the hat. In fact, given the consistent reports of the use of the hat, the hat during translation, it is not possible to know with certainty whether Joseph was using the Nephite interpreters or the seer stone in the hat during this period of time. One thing seems certain based upon witness accounts. During the period of the translation process, after the loss of the 116 pages, Joseph sat in the open without a curtain, dictating to his scribe while looking into his hat. The Spectacles and the Stone as Urim and Thummim At some point, several years after the publication of the Book of Mormon, both the Nephite interpreters, the Spectacles, and the Seer Stone became referred to as the Urim and Thummim. When the term Urim and Thummim was introduced in 1833, it did not refer uniquely to the instrument that Joseph recovered with the plates, but also referred to Joseph's own seer stone which he possessed prior to the translation of the Book of Mormon. In 1907, Elder B. H. Roberts clearly associates the term with both the stone and the Nephite interpreters. Quote, the seer stone referred to here was a chocolate-colored, somewhat egg-shaped stone which the prophet found while digging in a well in company with his brother Hiram. It possessed the qualities of Urim and Thummim, since by means of it, as described above, as well as by means of the interpreters found with the Nephite record, Joseph was able to translate the characters engraven on the plates." In common church conversation, the designation Urim and Thummim is always assumed to be referring to the Nephite interpreters that Joseph recovered with the plates. Only those familiar with the sources will realize that there was more than one translation instrument. The term Urim and Thummim referred to any instrument used for the purpose of translation or the receipt of revelation. The January 2013 ensign clarifies that Joseph used multiple revelatory instruments and that they all were classified under the name Urim and Thummim. Quote, Those who believe that Joseph Smith's revelations contained the voice of the Lord speaking to them also accepted the miraculous ways in which the revelations were received. Some of the Prophet Joseph's earliest revelations came through the same means by which he translated the Book of Mormon from the gold plates. In the stone box containing the gold plates, Joseph found what Book of Mormon prophets referred to as interpreters, or a stone, which shall shine forth in the darkness unto light. Alma chapter 37, verses 23 to 24. He described the instrument as spectacles, and referred to it as using an old in, to it using an Old Testament term Urim and Thummim see Exodus chapter 28 verse 30 he also he also sometimes applied the term to the other stones he possessed called seer stones because they aided him in receiving revelations as a seer the prophet received some early revelations through the use of these seer stones end quote the idea that there could be more than one Urim and Thummim is not unusual, and we only need to look to the Bible. The Urim and Thummim referred to in the Bible is not the same instrument used by the Nephites or by Joseph Smith. However, the biblical references to the Urim and Thummim do associate the instrument with a breastplate. 
Exodus chapter 28 verse 30 states, quote, And thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart, when he goeth before the Lord. End quote. Leviticus chapter 8 verse 8 states, quote, And he put the breastplate upon him, and also he put in the breastplate the Urim and Thummim. End quote. From the church's official website, lds.org, we learn that the Urim and Thummim was, quote, an ancient instrument or tool prepared by God and used by Joseph Smith to aid in the translation of the Book of Mormon. God provided a Urim and Thummim to his prophets in ancient times, see Exodus chapter 28, verse 30, 1 Samuel 28, verse 6, Ezra chapter 2, verse 63, end quote. The Urim and Thummim is not a unique instrument. God did not provide the Urim and Thummim, but instead provided a Urim and Thummim. There can be more than one instrument called Urim and Thummim. The biblical Urim and Thummim was also used to receive revelation, and, indi- and indicated in First chap- Samuel chapter 28, verse 6, quote, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. Didn't Joseph Smith talk of the Urim and Thummim? During the latter part of his life, Joseph Smith clearly referred to the instruments used for translation as the Urim and Thummim. Joseph Smith said in the Elder's Journal in 1838, I obtained them and the Urim and Thummim with them by the means of which I translated the plates, and thus came the Book of Mormon. A more well-known example is the Wentworth letter, printed in the, in the 1st of March, 1842 edition of the Times and Seasons. Joseph writes, quote, With the records was found a curious instrument, which the ancients called Urim and Thummim, which consisted of two transparent stones set in the rims of a bow fastened to a breastplate, through the medium of the Urim and Thummim, I translated the record by the gift and power of God. End quote. However, did Joseph use the term Urim and Thummim to refer to the translation instruments during the period that he was translating the Book of Mormon? Teachings of the Presidents of the Church, Joseph Smith, credits Joseph Smith as saying, quote, The angel was rejoiced when he gave me back the Urim and Thummim. End quote. It initially appears from this statement that Joseph used the term Urim and Thummim to refer to the Nephite spectacles at the time he was translating. However, an examination of the end note for this entry reveals that this text is from Lucy Max Smith's 1845 Manuscript History of the Prophet's Life, which was written well after the term Urim and Thummim came into general use. Furthermore, upon examining the original text of Lucy's 1845 manuscript, we note some interesting alterations. The text was originally written by Lucy, partially in the third person. Quote, I then continued, Joseph, my supplications to God without cessation that his mercy might again be exercised towards me, and on the 22nd of September I had the joy and satisfaction of again receiving the record into my possession, and I have commenced translating, and Emma writes for me now, but the angel said that if I get the plates again that the Lord would send someone to write for me, and I trust that it will be so. 
He also said that the angel seemed rejoiced when he gave him back the plates, and said that he was pleased with his faithfulness and humility, also that the Lord was pleased with him, and loved him for his penitence and diligence in prayer, in which he had had performed his duty so well as to receive the record, and he was able to enter upon the work of translation again." After strikeouts and word replacements, the complete text reads as if it were written by Joseph himself, with all references to the plates and the record now replaced with the Urim and Thummim. Quote, I continued, said Joseph, my supplications to God without cessation, that his mercy might again be exercised toward me, towards me, and on the 22nd of September I had the joy and satisfaction of again receiving the Urim and Thummim into my possession, and I have commenced translating, and Emma writes for me now, but the angel said that the Lord would send someone to write for me, and I trust that it will be so. He also said that he was rejoiced when he gave me back the Urim and Thummim, and that God was pleased with my faithfulness and humility, and loved me for my penitence and diligence in prayer, in the which I had performed his duty so well as to receive the Urim and Thummim, and was able to enter upon the work of translation again. Since Lucy is the one who originally wrote the text of Joseph's statement, we have established that this, this reference to the Urim and Thummim as a late second-hand statement. The use of the term to refer to the translation instruments is unsurprising, but its use as a replacement for the references to the plates is unusual. By the time Lucy's history was published in 1853, there was no indication that these Urim and Thummim references originally referred to the plates, and it now appeared that Joseph Smith himself had spoken these words. Quote, After the angel left me, said he, I continued my supplications to God without cessation, and on the 22nd of September I had the joy and satisfaction of again receiving the Urim and Thummim, with which I have again commenced translating, and Emma writes for me, but the angel said that the Lord would send me a scribe, and I trust his promise will be verified. The angel seemed pleased with me when he gave me back the Urim and Thummim, and he told me that the Lord loved me for my faithfulness and humility. It was common practice in the 19th century to rewrite historical third-person accounts as first-person accounts, such was also the case with history of the church. Oliver Cowdery and the Urim and Thummim Oliver Cowdery, as Joseph's scribe during the period of translation that produced the text of the Book of Mormon that we have today, is arguably the best witness of the method used. Some of Oliver's accounts of the translation process refer to the Urim and Thummim and the Nephite interpreters. For example, in 1834, W. W. Phelps wrote a letter to Oliver Cowdery noting that the translation occurred, quote, through the aid of the Urim and Thummim, Nephite interpreters or divine spectacles, end quote. Oliver wrote an article in the Latter-day Saints Messenger and Advocate in which he described the translation process, quote, These were days never to be forgotten, to sit under the sound of a voice dictated by the inspiration of heaven, awakened the utmost gratitude of this bosom. Day after day I continued, uninterrupted, to write from his mouth as he translated the Urim and Thummim, or, as the Nephites would have said, interpreters, the history or record called the Book of Mormon. 
The Messenger and Advocate was a church newspaper, and its audience was primarily members of the church. It is clear that by 1834, Urim and Thummim was the accepted name within the church for the instruments used during the translation. There is no distinction being made between Nephite interpreters and seer stone. After Oliver left the church, he continued to hold to his testimony of the Book of Mormon, although he no longer believed that Joseph Smith was inspired to lead the church. There is a well-known quote attributed to Oliver Cowdery circulating on the Internet that is used as evidence that Oliver became skeptical of his role in the translation of the Book of Mormon, and that he specifically mentioned the use of the seer stone as the Urim and Thummim. Oliver is purported to have said the following in 1839, quote, I have sometimes had seasons of skepticism, in which I did seriously wonder whether the prophet and I were men in our sober senses, when he would be translating from the plates, through the Urim and Thummim, and the plates not be inside at all. But I believed in both the seer and the seer stone, and what the first elder announced as revelation from God, I accepted as such, and committed to paper with a glad mind and happy heart and swift pen, for I believed him to be the soul of honor and truth, a young man who would die before he would lie. The document containing these statements is known to be a, a historical forgery although it was accepted as genuine for many years after it came to light in 1906. The document consists primarily of phrases authored by Oliver Cowdery which were extracted from several 1835 and 1835, 1834 and 1835 issues of the Latter-day Saints Messenger and Advocate, and then placed into a different context. The document also utilizes a rephrasing of the concepts discussed in David Whitmer's 1887, An Address to All Believers in Christ. Richard Lloyd Anderson explains the origin of this forgery in the April 18, 1987 ensign. Quote, in 1906, the Mountain Evangelist, R.B. Neal, a leader in the American Anti-Mormon Association, published a document with much fanfare, but without evidence of the document's authenticity. Reverend Neal claimed that the publication was a reprint of an 1839 document explaining Oliver Cowdery's apostasy, defense in a rehearsal of my grounds for separating myself from the Latter-day Saints. No more important document has been unearthed since I have been engaged in this warfare, R.B. Neal asserted. With such convictions, one can be sure that Reverend Neal would have produced evidence to prove that the original actually existed. But all we have is his 1906 first printing, which is silent about why no one had ever heard of the document until half a century after Oliver Cowdery's death. There is another matter involving Oliver Cowdery that we must take into account. We know that at some point during the translation process that Oliver Cowdery desired to translate. His attempt and subsequent failure to do so has provided one of the church's most well-known object lessons. Most members of the church are likely familiar with the lesson offered in Doctrine and Covenants, section 9, verses 7 to 9. Quote, Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought save it was to ask me. But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind, then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore you shall feel that it is right. But if it be not right, you shall have no such feelings. 
but you shall have a stupor of thought that shall cause you to forget the thing which is wrong. Therefore you cannot write that which is sacred, save it be given you from me. The lesson taught is a very powerful one, and defines for Latter-day Saints the manner in which we can receive personal revelation. Elder Richard G. Scott discussed this in the April 2007 General Conference. Quote, Some misunderstandings about prayer can be clarified by realizing that the scriptures define principles for effective prayer, but they do not assure when a response will be given. Actually, he will reply in one of three ways. First, you can feel the peace, comfort, and assurance that confirm that your decision is right. Or second, you can sense that unsettled feeling, the stupor of thought, indicating that your choice is wrong. Or third, and this is the difficult one, you can feel no response. End quote. Oliver's failed attempt to translate provided this valuable lesson to generations to come. However, when we consider the translation process itself, do we ever wonder what method Oliver would have employed in his attempt to translate? We know that Oliver was not allowed to view the plates or the Nephite interpreters until he became one of the three witnesses. Yet, we typically assume that the process of translation required the use of the Nephite interpreters and a view of the plates. There is a contradiction here. The story of Oliver's attempt at translation does not fit with the common image of Joseph and Oliver sitting at a table separated by a curtain. How, then, did Oliver attempt to translate the plates during the period of time prior to being a witness? What translation instrument did Oliver use? Although Oliver's translation attempt does not fit the scenario in which the Nephite interpreters are employed, it does fit perfectly well with the use of the stone and the hat, with Oliver and Joseph sitting in plain view of one another and the plates covered. Richard Lloyd Anderson, in an article in the September 1977 Ensign, noted this inconsistency regarding Oliver and the plates. Quote, Oliver Cowdery says, I handled with my plates, my hands, the gold plates. Yet another witness, David Whitmer, insisted that he had never handled the plates. He only watched as the angel in the vision displayed the plates and other sacred objects. Since Whitmer and Cowdery were together at this impressive vision, one must infer that Oliver did not handle the plates at that time. Thus a distinction emerges between the key secretary and his witness brother-in-law. At some time during the translation process, Oliver Cowdery evidently handled the plates. End quote. Anderson's conclusion is that, quote, Oliver Cowdery might well have handled the plates during his translation attempt, end quote. This is based upon the common assumption that the use of the Nephite interpreters as spectacles required the translator to view the plates directly through them. Anderson assumes that the process involved, quote, the physical art of placing the translating instruments directly over the plates, end quote. Anderson also quotes a second-hand account that he states, quote, explicitly says that the translator placed the Urim and Thummim over the characters on the plates, though it must be judged with great caution, end quote. The account is given by church member Samuel W. Richards. Richards visited Oliver Cowdery and described the visit as follows, quote, he, Oliver Cowdery, represented Joseph as sitting at a table with the plates before him, translating them by means of the Urim and Thummim, while he sat beside him writing every word as Joseph spoke to them 
spoke them to him. This was done by holding the translators over the hieroglyphics, the translation appearing distinctly on the instrument, which had been touched by the finger of God, and dedicated and consecrated for the express purpose of translating languages. Anderson qualifies the account by noting that, quote, It is doubtful whether Samuel Richards could quote Oliver accurately in 1907, 59 years after their intimate visit. In fact, he continued the above statement by picturing Oliver Cowdery as successfully translating himself, thus learning how Joseph Smith performed that work. But the contemporary revelation to Oliver Cowdery says the opposite, Doctrine and Covenants, section 9, which means that no one besides Joseph Smith knew personally the exact means of translation. End quote. This account would also imply that Oliver actually viewed the Nephite translation instrument and that the plates prior to and the plates prior to acting as one of the three witnesses. It seems more reasonable, however, that Oliver may have attempted to translate without having to view the plates, though he could have handled the plates while covered. Did Oliver attempt to translate using Joseph Seerstone? This is one possibility. Another possibility is that Oliver possessed his own revelatory instrument and attempted to use it to translate. There is such an inference in the original text of the Doctrine and Covenants, section 8, which discusses Oliver's, quote, gift, end quote. This is clarified on the church's official church history website, history.lds.org. In the article, Oliver Cowdery's Gift, by Jeffrey G. Cannon, we learn that Oliver possessed a divining rod which he used to receive revelation. Quote, Oliver Cowdery lived in a culture steeped in biblical ideas, language, and practices. The revelations reference to Moses likely resonated with him. The Old Testament account of Moses and his brother Aaron recounted several instances of using rods to manifest God's will. See Exodus chapter 7 verses 9 to 12. Numbers chapter 17 verse 8. Many Christians in Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery's day similarly believed in divining rods as instruments for revelation. Cowdery was among those who believed in and used a divining rod. End quote. Since Oliver had used his divining rod to receive revelation in the past, it is not unreasonable to assume that Oliver may have attempted to use his own revelatory instrument during his attempt to translate. This would satisfy the requirement that he not view the plates or the Nephite interpreters prior to becoming one of the three witnesses. References to the Urim and Thummim in the Doctrine and Covenants there are a number of references to the Urim and Thummim in the Doctrine and Covenants. Could any of these be used to determine when the term came into use? The Doctrine and Covenants mentions a number of revelations that were received by Joseph Smith through the Urim and Thummim. Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, which has numerous references, was received in 1843, well after the term was commonly used. Of greater interest are Doctrine and Covenants section 10 and 17, which were received during the time that translation was in progress. Doctrine and Covenants section 10 was received in the summer of 1828. Upon reading verse 1, it initially appears that the term Urim and Thummim was used at the time that the revelation was received. Quote, now behold, I say unto you that because you have delivered up those that writings which you had power given unto you to translate by the means of the Urim and Thummim into the hands of a wicked man, you have lost them. End quote. 
However, the term Urim and Thummim was added in 1835 when the revelation was included in the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. The same revelation in the 1833 Book of Commandments does not refer to the instrument used for the translation. Quote, now behold, I say unto you, that because you delivered up so many writings which you had power to translate into the hands of a wicked man, you have lost them. End quote. More intriguing is Doctrine and Covenants section 17, which was received in June 1829, quote, through the Urim and Thummim. End quote. Verse 1 informs the three witnesses that, quote, You shall have a view of the plates, and also of the breastplate, the sword of Labum, the Urim and Thummim, which were given to the brother of Jared upon the mount, when he talked with the Lord face to face, and the miraculous directors which were given to Lehi while in the wilderness on the borders of the Red Sea. Not only are the translation instruments a key subject of the revelation, but the term Urim and Thummim is directly associated with the Nephite interpreters, quote, which were given to the brother of Jared. End quote. The original text of section 17 was not part of the Book of Commandments, and was initially printed as section 42 in the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. The original text of this revelation can be found in Revelation, June 1829, of the Joseph Smith Papers. Quote, Behold, I say unto you, that you must rely upon my word, which if you do with full purpose of heart, you shall have a view of the plate, and also the breastplate, the sword of Laban, the Urim and Thummim, which was given to the brother of Jared upon the mount when he talked with the Lord face to face, and the marvelous directors, which was given to Lehi while in the wilderness on the borders of the Red Sea. End quote. The historical introduction to this section in, Joseph, in the Joseph Smith paper states that, quote, Revelation Book 2 contains the earliest extant copy of this revelation. Undated, it apparently was copied sometime after 25 November 1835 by scribe Frederick G. Williams. No earlier copy is extant. The 1835 Doctrine and Covenants and later accounts give the date as June 1829, end quote. If the actual date upon which this revelation was committed to paper was in 1829, this would establish that the term Urim and Thummim was associated with the Nephite interpreters during the period that the translation was in progress. Unfortunately, the written version of this revelation cannot be dated earlier than 1834. The Stone and the Hat Prior to the appearance of the angel Moroni, Joseph possessed several stones that he used for the purpose of locating things, the most well-known use being the location of lost objects or buried treasure. This was not as unusual of an activity at that time as it would appear to be from our modern perspective. In 1825, the Wayne Sentinel in Palmyra reported that buried treasure had been found, quote, by the help of a mineral stone, which becomes transparent when placed in a hat, and the light excluded by the face of him who looks into it. End quote. Regarding the Smith family and treasure seeking, Latter day Saint scholar Richard Bushman notes quote, So that once you spread out this process, so that Joseph Smith is not a peculiarly weird version of treasure seeking, but that it was widely practiced, suddenly it, it was no longer a blot on his character or his family's character. It was no more scandalous than, say, gambling, playing poker today. 
a little bit discredited and slightly morally disreputable, but not really evil. And when it was found that all sorts of treasure seekers were also serious Christians, why not the Smiths too? So instead of being a puzzle or a contradiction, it was just one aspect of the Smith family culture and not really anything to be worried about. It makes logical sense that the Lord would choose to approach someone who would readily accept the idea that one could see using a stone. Joseph already believed that the stone could be used to see things, and the transition from using the stone to receive information to a means of receiving revelation from God would have been straightforward. Recall that to Joseph, the spectacles that he received from Moroni were simply a more powerful version of the stone that he already possessed. Elder Dallin H. Oaks discussed the treasure-seeking culture of that time, noting that, quote, It was indulged in by upright and righteous men such as Josiah Stowell, who employed Joseph Smith at $14 a month, in part because of the crushing poverty of the Smith family, end quote. The church's student manual tells us that, quote, Joseph and his brothers hired out by the day at whatever work was available. Treasure hunting, or money digging as it was often called, was popular in the United States at this time. In October 1825, Josiah stole from South Bainbridge, New York, a farmer, lumber mill owner, and deacon in the Presbyterian Church, came to ask Joseph to help him in such a venture. End quote. The prophet's mother, Lucy Mack Smith, noted that, Quote, After laboring for the old gentleman about a month without success, Joseph prevailed upon him to cease his operations. End quote. In March of the next year, several of Stoll's relatives felt that Joseph had been defrauding Stoll and brought charges against him. Joseph was taken before a judge and charged with quote, glass looking. End quote. In fact, the June 1994 ensign noted Joseph's trial and acquittal for glass looking as one of the, quote, highlights in the prophet's life, end quote. quote. Highlights in the prophet's life, 20 March 1826, tried and acquitted on fanciful charge of being a disorderly person, South Bainbridge, Chenango County, New York. New York law defined a disorderly person as, among other things, a vagrant or a seeker of lost goods. The prophet had been accused of both. The first charge was false and was made simply to cause trouble. Joseph use, Joseph's use of a seer stone to see things that others could not see with the naked eye brought the second charge. Those who brought the charges were apparently concerned that Joseph might bilk his employer, Josiah Stoll, out of some money. Mr. Stoll's testimony clearly said this was not so, and that he trusted Joseph Smith." Brant Gardner clarifies the role that Joseph and his stone played within the community of Palmyra. Quote, Young Joseph Smith was a member of a specialized sub-community with ties to these very old and very respected practices, though by the early 1800s they were respected only by, by a marginalized segment of society. He exhibited a talent parallel to others in similar communities. Even in Palmyra he was not unique. In D. Michael Quinn's words, until the Book of Mormon thrust young Smith into prominence, Palmyra's most notable seer was Sally Chase, who used a greenish-colored stone. William Stafford also had a seer stone, and Joshua Stafford had a peep stone, which looked like white marble and had a hole through the center. Richard Bushman adds Chauncey Hart and an unnamed man in Susquehanna County, both of whom had stones with which they had found lost objects." 
The August 1987 ensign relates how Brigham Young talked of Joseph obtaining his first seer stone, quote, by digging 15 feet underground after seeing it first in another seer stone, end quote. This occurred while Joseph was digging a well in the company of Willard Chase, who was himself a treasure seeker. Chase's own account of the event noted that, quote, After digging about 20 feet below the surface of the earth, we discovered a singularly appearing stone which excited my curiosity. I brought it to the top of the well, and as we were examining it, Joseph put it into his hat, and then his face into the top of his hat, end quote. Joseph ultimately ended up keeping the stone, and it is this stone that he may have used during translation. Chase's statement, made several years after the publication of the Book of Mormon, asserted that he was the rightful owner of the stone, claiming to only have lent it to Joseph. Prior to receiving the plates, Joseph used the stone to see things as a seer. In 1835, Oliver Cowdery described how the angel Moroni revealed the location of the golden plates to Joseph Smith, stating that, quote, The vision of his mind being opened at the same time, he was permitted to view it critically, and previously being acquainted with the place, he was able to follow the direction of the vision, afterward, according to the voice of the angel, and obtain the book, end quote. At the time of Moroni's visit, Joseph was well acquainted with the use of the seer stone to see things. It is not unreasonable to suppose that Joseph looked into his stone in order to see the vision of the hill in which the plates were hidden after receiving Moroni's instruction regarding their location. One such account supporting this idea was given by Henry Harris in 1833, in which he stated, quote, I had a conversation with Joseph, and asked him where he found them, the plates, and how he come to know where they were. He said he had a revelation from God that told him they were hid in a certain hill, and he looked in his stone and saw them in the place of deposit." Joseph Knight also recounts that Joseph used the stone to identify his future wife Emma as being the person who should accompany him to retrieve the plates, noting that Joseph Quote, looked in his glass and found it was Emma Hale, daughter of old Mr. Hale of Pennsylvania, a girl that he had seen before. End quote. The Spectacles, the Stone, and the Curtain The image of Joseph translating using the stone and in the hat does not match the picture that we typically have in our mind of Joseph looking at the plates through a pair of spectacles while sitting behind a curtain. However, the use of the stone and the hat provides a distinct advantage in bolstering the claim that Joseph received the Book of Mormon text through Revelation. The absence of a curtain during the latter part of the translation, during which the entire text of the Book of Mormon that we now have was produced, substantially weakens the critical argument that Joseph dictated the Book of Mormon by plagiarizing a number of other works. Instead of having Joseph obscured by a curtain or blanket, which could have hidden any number of reference materials, Joseph sat in the open, dictating the text of the Book of Mormon to Oliver, while looking at the interpreter placed in his hat. Now, instead of, quote, Joseph the plagiarist, end quote, those wishing to assert an alternate explanation of the translation must assert, quote, Joseph the plagiarist who has a photographic memory, end quote. This is of particular value with respect to the biblical passages contained within the Book of Mormon, which duplicate the textual structure of the King James Version. 
Joseph was never seen consulting a Bible as he dictated the text of the Book of Mormon. One must either assume that he consulted a Bible out of the view of others and memorized the text, or accept the claim that the text was revealed to him as he dictated it. That having been said, there is ample evidence that a curtain or a sheet of some kind was used during the early period of translation. Martin Harris is quoted as saying as much in an 1831 issue of the Palmyra Reflector. According to the Reflector, quote, Harris declares that when he acted as amuensis and wrote the translation as, Joseph, as Smith dictated, there was his fear of the divine displeasure that a screen sheet was suspended between the prophet and himself, end quote. This could correspond to the early period of the translation during which Harris acted as scribe prior to the loss of the 116 pages of manuscript. The use of the curtain to screen the translator from the scribe certainly makes sense if the translation instruments being employed are the Nephite interpreters. Critic Eber D. Howe, in his 1834 book Mormonism Unveiled, notes that Harris mentions the use of a screen. Quote, Martin Harris says he wrote a considerable part of the book, as Smith dictated, and at one time the presence of the Lord was so great that a screen was hung up between him and the prophet. At other times the prophet would sit in a different room, or upstairs, while the Lord was communicating to him the contents of the plates. He does not pretend that he ever saw the wonderful plates but once, although he and Smith were engaged for months in deciphering their contents." End quote. The claim that Harris said that he saw the plates, quote, but once, end quote, is quite consistent with the stage of the translation process during which a curtain was employed. Harris only saw them once when he acted as one of the three witnesses. It is apparent that during the initial stage of the translation process, the sacred objects were required to be hidden from the view of others. Charles Anton, whose only knowledge of the process was relayed to him during a visit by Martin Harris, states, Quote, this young man was placed behind a curtain in the garret of a farmhouse and, being thus concealed from view, put on the spectacles occasionally, or rather looked through one of the glasses, deciphered the characters of the book, and having committed some of them to paper, handed copies from behind the curtain to those who stood on the outside. Not a word, however, was said about the plates having been deciphered by the gift of God." Everything in this way was affected by the large pair of spectacles. End quote. John A. Clark, in an, in an 1834 book chapter criticizing Mormonism, also associates the use of the curtain with the period during which Harris, Harris acted as scribe. Quote, the way that Smith made his transcripts and translations for Harris was the following. Although in the same room a thick curtain or blanket was suspended between them, and Smith concealed behind the blanket, pretended to look through his spectacles or transparent stones, and would then write down or repeat what he saw, which, when repeated aloud, was written down by Harris, who sat on the other side of the suspended blanket. End quote. Clark men Clark's mention of transcripts would make sense with the use of a curtain since it is known that Joseph copied characters off the plates and would have needed to shield them from the view at that time. 
Another hostile account, published ten years later in 1844, notes that, quote, The prophet, as he is now called, took care, of course, that neither of them nor anyone else should see the plates, the part of the room he occupied having been partitioned off from where they sat by a blanket, end quote. Pomeroy Tucker, a friend of Martin Harris, who later became skeptical of Harris's involvement with Mormonism, claims that Joseph dictated, quote, from behind a blanket screen drawn across a dark corner of a room at his residence, for at this time the original revelation limiting to the prophet the right of seeing the sacred plates had not yet been changed, and the view with, with the instrument used was even too brilliant for his own spiritualized eyes in the light, end quote. Since Tucker never observed the process of translation, it is likely that he heard this story from Martin Harris himself. So far, all of the accounts describing the use of a curtain appear to have originated with Martin Harris. However, during, during an interview for the Chicago Tribune in 1885, Book of Mormon witness David Whitmer also mentioned the use of a curtain, although this particular account can't contain some obvious inaccuracies. Quote, Joseph Smith, Jr. also said that he had been commanded to at once begin the translation of the work in the presence of three witnesses. In accordance with this command, Smith, Cowdery, and Whitmer proceeded to the latter's home, accompanied by Smith's wife, and bearing with them the precious plates and spectacles. The house of Sr. Whitmer was a primitive and poorly designed structure, but it was deemed the most secure for the carrying out the sacred trust on account of the threats that had been made against Smith by his mercenary neighbors. In order to give privacy to the proceeding, a blanket which served as a portiere was stretched across the family living room to shelter the translators and the plates from the eye of any who might call at the house while the work was in progress. This, Mr. Whitmer states, was the only use made of the blanket, and it was not for the purpose of concealing the plates or the translator from the eyes of the amu amuensis. In fact, Smith was at no time concealed from his collaborators, and the translation was performed in the presence of not only the persons mentioned, but, the, but of the entire Whitmer household, and several of Smith's relatives besides." There are several elements of this account that make it appear that the interviewer has mixed various aspects of the translation process. For example, it was not required that Joseph perform the translation in the presence of three witnesses. This is obviously a reference to the three witnesses. However, it is interesting to note that the interviewer states that Whitmer actually made an effort to specify that a blanket was used only to shield the translation process from others who might stop by. This may indicate that a curtain was used in a different manner in the Whitmer home than it was during Martin Harris's tenure as scribe. Whitmer is then said to describe the actual translation process. Quote, Each time before resuming the work, all present would kneel in prayer and invoke the divine blessing on the proceeding. After the prayer, Smith would sit on one side of the table and the amuensis in turn as they became tired on the other. Those present and not actively engaged in the work seated themselves around the room, and then the work began. After affixing the magical spectacles to his eyes, Smith would take the plates and translate the characters one at a time. End quote. 
In this instance, Whitmer seems to indicate the use of the Nephite interpreters in full view of others, since Whitmer would not have been allowed to view the spectacles or the plates prior to being one of the three witnesses, this account does not correlate with other accounts, even those other accounts coming from Whitmer himself. It is possible that Whitmer described both aspects of the early translation, using the spectacles and blankets, blanket as well as the latter situation in which Joseph placed the translation instrument into his hat and dictated it in full view of others. The interviewer may not have distinguished the various elements present during different periods of translation, and may have simply conflated these different elements into the single story that was produced. By the time that the translation resumed, after the loss of the 116 pages, the translation method appears to have changed substantially. Even if a blanket or curtain was used in the Whitmer home for any period of time, it appears to have quickly disappeared. The translation of the entire text of the Book of Mormon that we now have took place primarily at David Whitmer's home. Not only is the use of a curtain not apparent, but there is an actual denial that it was used in the process. David Whitmer's daughter Elizabeth Ann Whitmer Cowdery stated, quote, I cheerfully certify that I was familiar with the manner of Joseph Smith's translating the Book of Mormon. He translated the most of it at my father's house, and I often sat by and saw and heard them translate and write for hours together. Joseph never had a curtain drawn between him and his scribe while he was translating. He would place the director in his hat, and then place his face in his hat, so as to exclude the light, and then read to his scribe the words as they appeared before him." Elizabeth asserts that the translation at the Whitmer home was performed using the translation instrument in the hat, thus eliminating any need for a curtain to shield the Nephite interpreters and the plates from view. Even the anomalous account reported to have come from David Whitmer regarding the use of a curtain at his home includes the claim that the translation occurred in the open where anyone could have observed it. The fact that Elizabeth felt the need to make such a statement at all strongly implies that there was still a story in circulation among the Latter-day Saints that a curtain was used in the translation process. In 1887, David Whitmer, who two years earlier in the 1885 Chicago Tribune interview asserted the use of the Nephite interpreters and curtain, now also described the translation method using the stone and the hat. Quote, I will now give you a description of the manner in which the Book of Mormon was translated. Joseph Smith would put the seer stone into a hat, and put his face in the hat, drawing it closely around his face to exclude the light, and in the darkness the spiritual light would shine. A piece of something resembling parchment would appear, and on that appeared the writing. One character at a time would appear, and under it was the interpretation in English. Brother Joseph would read off the English to Oliver Cowdery, who was his principal scribe, and when it was written down and repeated to Brother Joseph to see if it was correct, then it would disappear, and another character with the interpretation would appear. Thus the Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God, and not by any power of man. What instrument did Joseph use to translate the Book of Mormon? 
In 1886, David Whitmer indicates that Joseph used his own seer stone to translate all of our current Book of Mormon text. In this interview, Whitmer indicates that the spectacles were never returned after the loss of the 116 pages, and that a seer stone was made available to Joseph Smith for the purpose of continuing the translation. However, there is no way to confirm that this was actually the case. What eventually happened to Joseph's seer stone? According to Whitmer, quote, after the translation of the Book of Mormon was finished early in the spring of 1830, before April 6th, Joseph gave the stone to Oliver Cowdery and told me, as well as the rest, that he was through with it, and he did not use the stone any more. The stone ultimately made its way to Utah. At one point, the stone was present at the Manti Temple dedication. Wilford Woodruff wrote about this event in his journal. Quote, Before leaving, I consecrated upon the altar the seer's stone that Joseph Smith found by revelation some thirty feet under the earth carried by him through his life. End quote. In 1956, Elder Joseph Fielding Smith commented that quote, The statement has been made that the Urim and Thummim was on the altar in the Manti Temple when that building was dedicated. The Urim and Thummim, so spoken of, however, was the seer stone which was in the possession of the Prophet Joseph Smith in early days. This seer stone is currently in the possession of the Church. This means that the instrument by which the Book of Mormon may have been, or been all or partially translated, is currently still in the possession of the Church, as opposed to the quote, original end quote, Urim and Thummim. The Nephite interpreters, which were returned to the angel Moroni at some point during or after translation. References to the stone being used during the Book of Mormon translation are not confined to the 19th century. We have already seen a reference to the stone in the September 1974 Friend, and Elder Russell M. Nelson's quote of David Whitmer's description of the stone and the hat in the July 1993 ensign. These are not the only instances. Elder Neil A. Maxwell quoted Martin Harris in the January 1997 ensign, noting that, quote, Martin Harris related of the seer stone, sentences would appear and were read by the prophet and written by Martin. End quote. In 1988, Elder Maxwell also referred to quote, the light shielding hat reportedly used by Joseph Smith during some of the translating of the Book of Mormon. End quote. In the January 1988 ensign, Church Educational System Area Director Kenneth Godfrey mentioned that quote, translation involved sight, power, transcription of the characters, the Urim and Thummim, or a seer stone, study, and prayer. End quote. Brigham Young University Professor Richard Lloyd Anderson, in the September 1977 ensign, quotes David Whitmer's statement that. Quote, Joseph Smith would put the seer stone into a hat and put his face in the hat, drawing it closely around his face to exclude the light. Elder Dallin H. Oaks clarified that quote, it should be recognized that such tools as the Urim and Thummim, the Liahona, seer stones, and other articles have been used appropriately in Biblical, Book of Mormon, and modern times by those who have the gift and authority to obtain revelation from God in connection with their use. End quote. Early church members knew that Joseph received revelation through the Urim and Thummim, which could have been either the Nephite interpreters or the seer stone. 
Doctrine and Covenants, section 28, states that, quote, Hiram Page, a member of the church, had a certain stone and professed to be receiving revelations by its aid concerning the upbuilding of Zion and the order of the church. Several members had been deceived by these claims, and even Oliver Cowdery was wrongly influenced thereby. End quote. The fact that Oliver quote, was wrongly influenced thereby end quote, clearly indicates that Oliver was quite aware that the Urim and Thummim was not limited to a single instrument. The resolution of this situation involved the Lord clarifying, quote, No one shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church, excepting, by, excepting my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., for he receiveth them even as Moses. End quote. Doctrine and Covenants, section 28, verse 2. Page's stone was destroyed, and any revelations that he received through it were disavowed. The problem was not the fact that Hiram Page was using a stone other than Joseph's Urim and Thummim to receive revelation, but rather the fact that he was not authorized to receive revelation on behalf of the church. The stone and the hat become buried in history. We already know that Joseph Smith was reluctant to describe the translation process in detail. Brigham Young University professor Stephen Ricks feels that Joseph's, quote, reticence was probably well justified and may have been due to the inordinate interest which some of the early saints had shown in the seer stone or to the negative and sometimes bitter reactions he encountered when he had reported some of his sacred experiences to others, end quote. Thus, Joseph never discussed the details regarding which translation instrument he used to both translate the Book of Mormon and to receive revelation. Joseph simply told the people that he received his early revelations through the Urim and Thummim. During the 1930s, Dr. Francis Kirkham endeavored to, quote, gather and evaluate all the newspaper articles he could locate about the Book of Mormon, end quote. Many of these articles were obtained from newspaper collections located in the New York area and have recently been made available in an online database hosted by the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship. As we have seen, many of these news accounts refer to the use of the spectacles or stone together with a hat, consistent with the late statements of Martin Harris and David Whitmer. Kirkham, in the October 1939 Improvement Era, quoted the accounts of the stone and the hat given by Martin Harris and David Whitmer. Kirkham noted, did not accept the eyewitness accounts that Joseph actually used a seer stone in translation of the Book of Mormon, concluding that, quote, the statements of both of these men are to be explained by the eagerness of old age to call upon a fading and uncertain memory for the details of events that which still remained real and objective to them, end quote. In his 1951 book, A New Witness for Christ in America, Kirkham believed that, quote, it may not have been ex expedient for the prophet to try and explain the method, method of translation for the reason his bearer, hearers would lack the capacity to understand it. He seemed sufficient, it seemed sufficient to, him, to them at the, that time to know that the translation had been made by the gift and power of God, end quote. Kirkham goes on to say that, quote, after a lapse of forty years of time, both David Whitmer and Martin Harris attempted to give the method of the translation. Evidently, the prophet did not tell them the method. Despite the fact that 
elements of Harris's and Whitmer's story were consistent with each other, Kirkham simply refused to accept the idea that the accounts might have basis in truth. In 1956, Elder Joseph Fielding Smith knew of the seer stone, but did not believe that Joseph actually used it during the translation of the Book of Mormon. Quote, seer stone not used in Book of Mormon translation. We have been taught since the days of the prophet that the Urim and Thummim were returned with the plates to the angel. We have no record of the prophet having the Urim and Thummim after the organization of the church. Statements of translations by the Urim and Thummim after that date are evidently errors. End quote. Like Kirkham, Joseph Fielding Smith simply refused to accept accounts of Joseph having utilized his seer stone for the purpose of translation as having, only, as having any validity. In his opinion, such accounts were simply erroneous. During the 20th century, the story of Joseph translating behind a curtain while employing the Nephite interpreters as the Urim and Thummim remained firmly established and generally uncontested among the general church membership. Latter-day Saint scholars, however, continued to research the stories of Joseph's use of the seer stone. Such references never made it into the general church curriculum or the awareness of the church general church membership. If you were a scholar, then you knew that Joseph used a seer stone. If you were a regular church member, then you knew that Joseph used the Nephite interpreters. Discussions of Joseph's use of, a seer, of seer stones or the practice of treasure-seeking remain primarily in the realm of LDS scholars. During the tenure of church historian Leonard J. Arrington, from 1972 and 1982, some attempts were made to make certain elements of Latter-day Saint history more accessible to the average member. One 1976 book produced during this period, The Story of the Latter-day Saints, by James B. Allen and Glenn M. Leonard, noted in a straightforward manner Joseph's acquisition of his seer stone and its use in the translation of the Book of Mormon. Quote, Sometime around 1822, before his first visit from the angel Moroni, Joseph was digging a well with Willard Chase, not far from the Smith home, and he discovered a smooth, dark-colored stone about the size of an egg that he called a seer stone. He later used it to help in the translation of the Book of Mormon and also in receiving certain revelations." The visibility of these issues among the general church membership began to change significantly in the early 1980s as the result of a very unusual and tragic event, the exposure of the Mark Hoffman forgeries. Suddenly, newspapers were talking all about salamanders and treasure guardians in association with some of the church's founding events. Mark Hoffman was a member of the church who became involved with the acquisition and sale of historic documents during the early 1980s. He seemed to have a knack for acquiring missing documents that were alluded to by other documents related to church history. For example, Hoffman claimed to have located a blessing in which Joseph Smith III was allegedly promised that he would be the next prophet of the church. Hoffman also produced what he claimed was the Anton transcript, which matched a description of the document document provided by Charles Anton himself. The most famous document in the collection of Hoffman forgeries was the Salamander Letter, which was purportedly written by Martin Harris. Hoffman's documents were so well crafted that they fooled a number of experts in the field, and they were all considered genuine for a period of time. During that period of time, a new wave of Latter-day Saint historical works were produced, 
taking into account the, quote, magical, end quote, aspects emphasized in the Salamander letter. There was also an effort to reconcile and integrate the new information with existing accounts. Some of Hoffman's documents were created based upon existing eyewitness accounts regarding treasure-seeking and to some extent simply amplified concepts that were already known to historians. Once the forgeries were exposed, it became necessary to re-examine what had been written to support the now discredited documents. Although the Hoffman forgeries were discounted, the underlying legitimate historical accounts that fueled their creation began to become more well-known among the general church membership. Joseph's early involvement with treasure-seeking, beyond what had long been documented in church publications regarding his efforts with Josiah Stoll, became more well-known. Elder Dallin H. Oaks emphasized that this in no way diminished Joseph's standing as the prophet of the Restoration. Quote, some sources close to Joseph Smith claim that in his youth, during his spiritual immaturity, prior to his being entrusted with the Book of Mormon plates, he sometimes used a stone in seeking for treasure. Whether this is so or not, we need to remember that no prophet is free from human frailties, especially before he is called to devote his life to the Lord's work. Line upon line, young Joseph Smith expanded his faith and understanding, and his spiritual gifts matured until he stood with power and stature as the prophet of the Restoration. The translation process was spiritual, not mechanical. The translation of the Book of Mormon was a spiritual process, not a mechanical one. The interaction of seer with seer stone is fascinating from a historical perspective, but is not but it is not the most important aspect of the process. It should be kept in mind that Joseph chose to emphasize that the most important aspect of the translation was that it was accomplished by the gift and power of God. The precise means by which God accomplished that purpose are primarily of historical interest and are not required to build faith. Joseph Smith initially received revelation through the Urim and Thummim, either spectacles or the stone, but eventually learned that he did not need a physical aid in order to act in the capacity of prophet and seer. One of the important lessons taught to Joseph during his, this process is that the use of these instruments required faith and humility. In order for Joseph to know the Lord's will, David Whitmer describes this, quote, at times when Brother Joseph would attempt to translate, he would look into the hat in which the stone was placed. He found he was spiritually blind and could not translate. He told us that his mind dwelt too much on the earthly things, and various causes would make him incapable of proceeding with the translation. When in this condition he would go out and pray, and when he became sufficiently humble before God, he would then proceed with the translation. Now we see how very strict the Lord is, and how he requires the heart of a man to be just right in his sight before he can receive revelation from him. Joseph eventually realized that his ability to communicate with the Lord was not dependent upon a sacred object, but was instead a function of his faith and humility. He spiritually outgrew the need to use the Nephite interpreters or the seer stone, thereby setting the pattern by which every person has the promise of receiving personal revelation. The objects used to guide him to this realization eventually became unimportant in light of the greater lesson learned.
viewing the translation process from a 21st century perspective. It is still desirable to reconcile the various accounts of the translation in order to understand how some have viewed various aspects of the process as contradictory. From this believer's perspective, the story of the translation of the Book of Mormon and the subsequent emphasis and de-emphasis of its various elements appears to have taken the following course. Point. Joseph Smith received the plates and the Nephite interpreters from the angel Moroni. Point. Joseph began the process of translation using the Nephite interpreters with Martin Harris as scribe. A curtain separated the translator from the scribe, thus shielding the plates and the Nephite interpreters from view. Point. Joseph may have placed the Nephite interpreters in a hat in order to shield them from the light, in accordance with the method that he used when utilizing his own seer stone. Point. At times, Joseph may have switched to using his own seer stone, placing it in the hat. On one such occasion, Martin swapped the stones, which he would never have dared to do had Joseph been using the Nephite instrument. Point. Upon completion of and subsequent loss of the 116 pages of manuscript, the angel Moroni took back the plates and the Nephite interpreters. Point. After a sufficient time of repentance, the plates were returned to Joseph along with the Nephite interpreters. Point. Joseph began translating using either the Nephite interpreters or his seer stone, either of which may have been placed in the hat. The witnesses would not necessarily have been able to determine which instrument he was using, although Martin Harris's swapping of the stone to test Joseph indicates that the stone was used at some point. This translation process occurred in plain view of those around Joseph, including his scribe Oliver Cowdery. There was no curtain present during this period of the translation process. Point. The translation process using the stone and the hat was observed directly by David Whitmer, Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, and Emma Smith, who shared their observations with interviewers many years later near the end of their lives. Point. As early as three years after the publication of the, of the Book of Mormon, the term Urim and Thummim became applied to both the Nephite interpreters and the seer stone. In the minds of the early saints, they were essentially the same instrument used for the same purpose. Point. The term Urim and Thummim subsequently became understood as representing the Nephite interpreters exclusively, and the use of the seer stone and the hat became pushed back in history. The lack of a need to use a curtain to shield the translator from the scribe likewise became buried in history. The translation process became represented within church literature and artwork by its earliest iteration, Nephite interpreters and plates shield from the scribe by a curtain. Point. During much of the 20th century, reports that the stone and the hat had been employed during the translation were dismissed with skepticism. Point. Partially as a result of the Mark Hoffman forgeries, new publications brought documents related to the use of the stone and the hat back into the public eye. Point. With the advent of the Internet, numerous documents related to the translation process became easily accessible to the general church membership, once again highlighting the use of the stone and the hat. References to these items entered the popular media. The presence of this information made it appear that the story that we are familiar with in church 
in the church is contradicted by that provided by witnesses such as Martin Harris, David Whitmer, and Emma Smith. Point. The church initiated efforts to make early documents such as the Joseph Smith papers easily accessible, further supporting these early accounts. The apparent contradiction between accounts of the translation are not actually contradictions at all and are primarily the result of certain elements of the translation process being de-emphasized or even denied at various points during the last century and a half. The use of the Nephite interpreters as Urim and Thummim, the use of the seer stone as Urim and Thummim, and the use of the hat with both instruments, as well as the appearance and disappearance of the curtain, all fit into the translation scenario at various stages of this process. Conclusion The average member now has access to an abundance of information regarding the Book of Mormon translation process. The Internet has allowed hundreds of documents to be made available to anyone interested in viewing them, rather than restricting them to just scholars who take the time to access the archives. The Joseph Smith Papers Project is a significant boon to historians and researchers who wish to view and examine the original documents associated with the Restoration. One significant new product of this effort is the church history website, history.lds.org, which hosts Revelations in Context. On this site, the church provides unprecedented detail regarding the production and evolution of the revelations received by the Prophet Joseph Smith. With regard to the specific procedures involved in the translation, Brant A. Gardner's 2011 book, the Gift and the Power Translating the Book of Mormon provides a detailed analysis of the process. The use of the seer stone should be of no particular surprise or concern to any Latter-day Saint who accepts that Joseph received a set of sacred stones that were consecrated for the purpose of receiving revelation and translation. After all, what precisely is the difference between using one seer stone versus another? One can assume that Joseph continued to use the Nephite interpreters since they were the instrument that was consecrated specifically for the purpose of translation. However, it is entirely reasonable to assume that God could consecrate any other instrument that he wished to serve that purpose as well. It is clear from the contemporary accounts that the object placed within the hat could either be the spectacles or the seer stone. Both were classified by the early Latter-day Saints as Urim and Thummim. It is therefore safe to say that, regardless of which actual instrument Joseph was using at any particular point in time, he did indeed translate the entire Book of Mormon using the Urim and Thummim. The primary issue that seems to concern some is the idea that Joseph translated in the open, in full view of others, by placing the instrument of translation in a hat and dictating next text without looking directly at the plates. Why would the Lord allow Joseph to alter the method used to translate? The 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon contains over 580 pages, which were dictated without repetition at a rate of 7 to 11.5 pages per day. This is a significant accomplishment, regardless of the precise method used during the translation.
A reasonable conclusion is that by allowing Joseph to dictate the entire Book of Mormon text in full view of witnesses, without the process being obscured in any way, it significantly strengthens the position that Joseph was indeed receiving revelation rather than consulting other materials. Finally, what of the plates themselves? If Joseph was not actually required to look at them directly during translation, then what was their purpose? Recall that the Urim and Thummim was a revelatory instrument. This means that rather than, quote, translating, end quote, the plates in the traditional sense, Joseph received revelation that inspired him with an understanding of what was written there. He then expressed these concepts during dictation using his own language. The Book of Mormon, therefore, constitutes Joseph's greatest and longest revelation. The plates did serve an important purpose, however. The three witnesses and the eight witnesses confirmed that the Nephite record actually existed, and testified of this to the world, even after some of them left the church. The witnesses' testimony has endured against all attempts to discredit them. The fact that the plates actually existed, and that Joseph had to exert great effort to recover and protect them, helped shape the prophet's character during these crucial early years, and the existence of a set of literal plates made it crystal clear that Joseph's account was a real history. A genuine ancient people had learned of Christ and had actually seen the risen Lord. Joseph's revelation was no romantic novel, nor was it a pious make-believe. An examination of the translation method, in light of the information now available, should not be used as a foundation for faith, nor should it contribute to the destruction of one's faith. It is simply history, and as such provides a richer and more in-depth understanding of what actually happened, as well as filling in some of the gaps that are apparent in the story that we know. Elder Neil A. Maxwell offers some wise advice against becoming too focused on the mechanics of, rather than the results of, the translation. Quote, we are looking beyond the mark today, for example, if we are more interested in the physical dimensions of the cross than in what Jesus achieved thereon, or when we neglect Alma's words on faith because we are too fascinated by the light-shielding hat reportedly used by Joseph Smith during some of the translating of the Book of Mormon. To neglect substance while focusing on process is another form of unsubmissively looking beyond the mark. End quote. This has been a recording of The Spectacles, the Stone, the Hat, and the Book, a 21st century believer's view of the Book of Mormon. Translation by Roger Nicholson, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Book of Mormon Scripture. Volume 5, 2013, pages 121 through 190. Read by Scott Dunaway. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.